one of the things that's been quite evident with my research is that although on a paleo diet you could you do consume fruits and vegetables and people might think well that's enough you know fiber the the reality is is that we need fiber from lots of different sources and fruit and vegetables isn't isn't quite enough um, mm -hmm. we really need the fiber that comes from whole grains we need the fiber that comes from legumes um, we need all that all the different types of dietary fiber that come from all of those different types of grains and legumes to to really promote a good healthy gut microbiome Hi, and welcome to another episode of 99% Fad Free. I'm your host, Tara Leong, a qualified nutritionist, and I'm helping bring you the very latest in health and nutrition information. On today's episode, I'm talking about the paleo diet with a special guest who has conducted some fascinating research, the first of its kind, studying the effect that the paleo diet has on our gut health. And the results are showing it's maybe not so good. You see, while you might be able to get enough dietary fiber following the paleo diet, if you work hard at it, this diet doesn't hit the mark when it comes to a special type of dietary fiber, resistant starch, which is proving to be very important in gut health. So settle in and get ready to hear what she has to say. Let's go. My guest today is Dr. Angela Giannone. She's a nutritionist, a lecturer in nutrition and dietetics at Edith Cowan University, and she's been conducting research as an academic on the paleo diet. And when I say research, I don't mean simply sitting up late at night, reading stuff on people's blogs and watching stuff on YouTube. I mean as a true scientist conducting real studies. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Angela. Thank you for having me, Tara. I've been very much looking forward to it. To start, I'd love to know how you became interested in this area of research. Um, well, it was quite interesting, really, because um, I did not my undergraduate degree in nutrition quite a long time ago, and I wanted to go back to uni to do a PhD, but I needed to add an honours degree onto my undergraduate first. And when I was starting my honours degree, the paleo diet was just sort of becoming popular, and but there wasn't any scientific evidence around whether or not it was actually effective or not. So I did a small study on the paleo diet for my honours degree. Um, and that went so well that we became quite interested in the gut health uh, after that because some of the participants who participated in my honours study actually had some sort of unexplained gut uh, effects or side effects of the diet. So I, I wondered mm. what was going on there and decided that it would make a good PhD project. Wow, fascinating. And we get to talk about all of that today because you've recently published a study titled Long-Term Paleolithic diet is associated with lower resistant starch intake, different gut microbiota composition, and increased serum TMAO concentrations. Now that is a mouthful, <laughs> isn't it? It is, it is quite a mouthful and um, it, it is a little bit scientific and a little bit wordy, so I'll, I'll do my best to explain it in, in real people speak for you. It would be a great place to start by understanding what the paleo diet is and maybe what does it eliminate or what does it include? 
Okay, so the paleo diet sort of um, became popular about maybe about 10 to 15 years ago because there was a, a hypothesis in the in the science world that perhaps the human genome hadn't really adapted to being um, constantly bombarded with products of agriculture. And by products of agriculture, I mean things that are farmed intensively. So things that we that we really only introduced into the human culture about 10,000 years ago. So like eating grains, um, white potatoes, um, and kind of processed foods is, is very new for the human species. And the theory was, well, maybe we're not adapted to consume those. So if you're following a paleo diet, you would exclude all of those foods. So you would really base your diet around fruits, vegetables, um, meats, and nuts and eggs. And, and it, you know, on paper, it sounds okay and it sounds like there might be something to it. So I guess that, that was why I wanted to research it in the first place. And you then are looking at the effect of this way of eating on gut health and the microbiome. So would you be able to explain to the listeners exactly what is the microbiome? Because we do hear a lot of it recently, haven't we? It's all in the news. It's in every single Facebook article in my news feed. Yeah, look, it is. It's everywhere. And and I think for good reason. I think scientists for a long time dismissed uh, the role of the microbiome in our health and our health outcomes. And I think we're really starting to realise just how important all those uh, bacterial bugs are that live on us and in us uh, in, in, in terms of maintaining our overall health outcomes. So when we talk about the microbiome in terms of the gut, what we're talking about is all the bacteria that live in our colon. So in our digestive tract, we've got uh, our mouth where we chew our food, we've got our, our stomach, and then we've got our small intestine. So our small intestine is where all of our food is absorbed. So anything that we can use from the food is um, taken into the small intestine. And then basically all the leftovers um, pass through to the colon. And so the colon is where all these bacteria live or where the majority of them live. And they basically eat what we can't eat. And in return for consuming all our leftover foods, they actually provide us in return with a whole lot of beneficial byproducts. And we're really starting to understand more and more that these beneficial byproducts are actually extremely important for our overall health and for many um, specific diseases. Yeah, and the research is so showing it to be promising in uh, areas of our health such as allergies and mental health, digestive health as yeah. well. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we could link gut health with um you know a lot of, a lot of chronic disease and a lot of preventable disease too just because you know we're not providing the bacteria in our gut with enough food to eat and therefore we're not getting enough of these beneficial byproducts in return and can you clarify the difference between a probiotic and a prebiotic okay so when someone tells you that they're they're talking about a probiotic a probiotic is the actual bacteria so say you're taking a probiotic capsule that is actual live bacteria within that capsule. A prebiotic is not the bacteria at all. The prebiotic is the food that you give a bacteria. So we're talking about uh, fermentable, you know, and usually they're carbohydrates um, that the bacteria can then consume. And then in return for consuming those prebiotics, 
um, that the good bacteria that eat those provide us with lots of um, good things in return. Yeah, and we are only just starting to really understand all of those good things that the bacteria, I I almost liken it to pooping out, don't they? They, they, do, they exactly. eat and that just is, like us. Yep, <laughs> that is exactly, the, it is exactly the right analogy because what they poop out is actually, um, you know, most of them are, are short-chain fatty acids, which is um, really key in, you know, educating the immune system, um, regulating uh, um, the the function of the colon and the whole uh, gastrointestinal tract, but also has a lot of impact on um, glucose metabolism um, and can have an effect on depression and mental health. So there's a lot of things we don't really understand yet about the way that these short-chain fatty acids work. And there's been a lot of interest in the wellness world in the area of uh, probiotics and how important they are. Uh, but unfortunately, the poor prebiotics, they, they get left out a little bit, don't they? Yeah, the, the thing is, is just there's been a few systematic reviews, which is just like a review of all the science around probiotics. And for healthy people, there really isn't enough evidence yet to recommend or support their consumption. So because we really don't understand yet what we're messing with, we don't understand all the different types of bacterial species that live in our colon. And we don't understand what they all do. We're actually probably better off at either eating a diet that's higher in fiber, which provides enough food for the good bugs that are already in our colon to to help them grow and do their job effectively. Yeah, because without that fiber, the prebiotic, they'll just simply die off, won't they? That's right. Or their populations won't be big enough for them to exert any good um, health benefits for us. Yeah, and and the range of different prebiotics that we can provide is really quite important, isn't it? Yeah, and that's one of the things that's um, been quite evident with my research is that although on a paleo diet you could you do consume fruits and vegetables, and people might think, well, that's enough, you know, fiber. The the reality is is that we need fiber from lots of different sources, and fruit and vegetables isn't isn't quite enough. Um, mm. We really need the fibre that comes from whole grains. We need the fibre that comes from legumes. Um, we need all that, all the different types of dietary fibre that come from all of those different types of grains and legumes to, to really promote a good, healthy gut microbiome. Yes. What did your research find that was uh, published this year? I think the main thing is that I looked at people that had been following the diet for more than a year. So in terms of their gut microbiome, it it should be pretty stable representation of what happens to your gut after a fairly long period of time of following the diet. We, We do know that gut microbiomes can change fairly rapidly, but they're not particularly stable in short periods of time. So studying people that had been on the diet for a you know fairly long period was um, a good idea because it gave us a good representation of, of what happens over the longer term period. So one of the things that um, I found, and, and I measured all their dietary intake as well, so I was quite, you know, I was able to correlate what they ate with what was happening in their gut. And, and we found some pretty big differences actually, probably bigger than I was expecting in terms of um, microbial composition so the the different ratios of the different bacteria 
were were significantly different and that's you know quite important in terms of uh, a research outcome very and so what was that difference so because the diet the paleo diet is fairly low in carbohydrates even though they had a pretty good vegetable intake they had some lower abundances of what we would consider good bacteria so your bifidobacteria and there's another one called rosburia which is a primarily a butyrate producer which is one of those short chain fatty acids um, they were lower in the paleo group and on the flip side of that there was another species um, called hungatella which was actually quite a bit higher in the paleo group and that one was quite significant and we'll probably talk about this later because um, that particular species produces a, a chemical which is associated with heart disease. So there was some pretty big differences in terms of the actual structure of the microbiome and when you when you overlay the structure with the dietary pattern, you can you can really get a feel for the fact that they're quite different because of the differences in whole grains and resistant starch consumption. Yeah, so and what does that mean in terms of, of food? So the people that are following the paleo diet long term, really, they aren't they they don't have that intake of that resistant starch coming from things like legumes, chickpeas, beans, grains, and those types of, of foods. So then the microbiome is uh, reflecting that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely it is. And the interesting findings were that the increase in the bacteria called hung hungatella was actually inversely associated with whole grain consumption. So the more whole grains you eat, the less likely you are to have the bacterial species that produces this heart disease biomarker. So that sort of tells us that um, consuming whole grains and legumes actually helps to downregulate those bacterial species, which which really should help our overall risk factors for um, cardiovascular disease. Okay. So tell us about the link between this hungatella, which sounds a bit like a horror movie, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Hungatella so it, and our risk of cardiovascular disease. Right. So it, it can get a little sciencey here, so I'll try and explain it uh, in the best way that I can. Yes. There's a, there's a fairly new biomarker for heart disease and it's called TMAO. And when, when you say biomarker, Angela, what, what do you mean by that? Okay, so when we take a blood sample, we can uh, measure this compound in your blood. So that's what we're referring to when we say biomarker. It's, it's a marker of health which we've taken from some biological sample of yours. And in this case, we take your, your blood mm -hmm. and we can measure the levels of this uh, TMAO in your bloodstream. And this compound was identified not that long ago in the science world and in most studies that have looked at TMAO they've found that the higher your TMAO levels are the more chance that you're going to die of cardiovascular disease and the more chance that you've got quite severe um, plaques in your cardiovascular um, arteries. So really what we're looking at is probably not a desirable thing to have a high level of. I see. It's very fascinating, isn't it? So the TMAO is in your bloodstream and it's associated with cardiovascular disease. So we know that. But the unique thing about this compound is that it is uni uniquely produced by the gut bacteria. So we don't, 
we don't get it from food unless we eat some smelly fish. Um, so some fish does have TMAO in it, which is processed a little bit differently to the way that the, the rest of it is produced in the body. So when we eat uh, meat um, and eggs, which contain um, a compound carnitine and choline, when these compounds pass through to the, the colon and the bacteria get a hold of them, they will eat eat up the carnitine and the choline and they will produce a, a, a precursor molecule to TMAO. So that's where the TMAO is coming from. It's, it's purely coming from eating uh, animal-based sources of protein. So while, while we're on that, Angela, oh, could you tell me a little bit about the saturated fat intake of the participants on the paleo diet? Yeah, so the, the saturated fat intake was was very high and I think – it's probably one of the more concerning aspects of the diet. So people who support paleo diet will often say, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with having a bit of meat and, you know, fresh vegetables. And I'd say, well, no, there's not really. But what happens is people who follow the diet in real life, they put a lot of fat on their food and a lot of people still are into the coconut oil fat Mm -hmm. um, which is very high in saturated fat and so people who are on paleo end up having and the people in the paleo group had nearly 50 percent of their energy come from fat which which is huge and then and then uh, the saturated fat is meant to be around 10 percent of our energy and the paleo groups were up around 20 percent so double the recommended Mm. intakes and this is a concern, obviously, for our our heart health because there is a link between saturated fat intake and our heart health. Absolutely. And although there might be a bit of contention around um, which which saturated fats are good and which ones are bad, we still know that saturated fat as a whole is linked with uh, cholesterol levels or total cholesterol levels. And I think it's it's prudent to be a little bit cautious when someone tries to tell you that, oh, no, fat is good for you or fat is fine. I, I would be a little bit sceptical about taking that advice because we really don't know that for sure at the moment. Yeah, and I think in, in these times that uh, the saturated fat is probably even higher than that which would have been in the Paleolithic times. Absolutely, yes. I mean, Added fats were would would never have been something that would have been used in a paleo in a true paleo diet because mm. there would have we wouldn't have had the ability to refine things like we do here now. So, no, um, we have access to to those foods so readily available. We can we can drive now to the Seven uh, Eleven and find a paleo bar exactly, and and we're following the paleo diet if we we're buying that. Uh, paleo bar but that is that extra intake of that saturated fat um, that is is quite high isn't it it is if we keep our saturated fat intake low then the risk is definitely lower yeah and and one of the issues with the uh with the paleo diet is that all of a sudden if you are removing that uh group of foods where um, you know your pastas and your rice and things like that those carbohydrate foods that are often avoided on the paleo diet you have to get food from somewhere your plate has to be filled up somehow doesn't it yeah Um, and often that's by the way of a little bit well quite a lot extra meat and then some vegetables on the plate yeah yeah and I think um, I think the initial 
few weeks on the diet is what probably what hooks people into it because when you first start the diet yes you might lose a little bit of weight initially because you've restricted your food choices Um, and while your appetite is adjusting to this new food pattern you don't eat as much and so that initial weight loss sort of really gets people feeling good and they think this this diet's great but what happens is over a period of time your body starts to adjust to this new way of eating but you're becoming a bit more hungry because you've lost weight and your body wants to get back to where it was before and then you start including more foods but maybe not as healthful foods maybe they're, they're higher in fat sort of paleo foods Although in my study, I, because of the type of study I conducted, I did adjust all of my results um, mathematically for um, the differences in weight between the groups. But if you look at it on paper, the people who were on the paleo diet were actually a little bit heavier than the people um, on my control diet. So really what that's telling me is that It isn't really any magic bullet for keeping people slim because they were just the same as the rest of us. Yes, that's a really great point. And Mm. I think it's important to note that 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 is where a lot of these diets do fall short in that they offer results quite quickly, but it's not actually necessarily because of the diet. So it's not the paleo lifestyle. It's just that people have... Uh, suddenly stopped having that extra Coke or that donut or or what have you. So they are eating more healthfully for sure. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, if you start paleo but you were eating, you know, bags of chips and so on before, then of course eating more vegetables and restricting carbs is going to make you feel better because it, quite frankly it was better than what you were doing before. Um, but, you know, after some period of time, once the weight loss is stabilised, things become a little bit more grey. You know, your gut has been affected then and um, maybe there's other risks that might emerge from doing it on a longer-term basis. Yes, and I like that point, Angela, because we often see with these diets the headlines, you know, paleo, you know, you can lose weight. Paleo is good for asthma or allergies or insert whatever whatever health condition into the headline. But unfortunately, health and unfortunately, nutrition isn't quite as simple as that because on one hand, it might cause a great outcome. And then on the other hand, such as what your research is showing, um, you know, there might be actually a, a trade-off, unfortunately. And so following this way of eating could impact our, our uh, microbiome, our gut health, which has many knock-on effects. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really uh, important point to, to make. Um, you know, we do need to be mindful of the nutrition advice that we're receiving. And when you when you get advice from somebody who's so confident in what they're saying or selling to you, you really need to be thinking to yourself that this is a red flag because people who have um, done proper study in nutrition and have done research will be very guarded or um, quick to point out the limitations of the advice that they're giving you because, you know, they understand that there's a really complex interactions that go on when you talk about nutrition and you really can't be supremely confident with any one piece of advice because you need to talk to the individual 
for, for some period of time in order to work out what's going to go on and what's going to work for them. So, um, you know, for your listeners that are going to be taking this on board, if, if they're they're talking to someone who's trying to sell them you know a paleo diet because it's going to do this then really they need to be just stopped for a second thing okay hang on this this could be a bit of a red flag yeah and and there's no harm in in trying to increase vegetable intake reducing you know those extra foods that aren't as healthful for us that's that's um, that's a, a, can be a good thing for many people, but I think our message here, Angela, is that you don't necessarily have to follow a type of diet to do that. And in fact, we should be including these foods that particularly have the resistant starch in them. And so, what are your favourite ways of making sure your gut bugs get their resistant starch? So the best sources of resistant starch are, are whole grains, but also uh, root vegetables. So, uh, in addition to having you know grainy breads and, and cereals in your diet, and I think Australians are getting better at having some more whole grain sources. One of the best and sort of most underrated superfoods, um, from my point of view, is just the old humble potato. Um, they're, they're very cheap. Um, they're always produced quite locally. Um, you can cook them in the oven or the microwave with very little preparation. If you just let them cool down a little bit before you eat them, some of that good resistant starch starts to form um, pretty quickly as they cool down. And that potatoes are just a really good way to increase resistant starch in your diet. Absolutely. And they taste delicious. Like you said, they're cheap. And, and one of the limitations really to the paleo diet is the the expense of the yeah. paleo diet. It is not accessible for all. And the um the, this this notion that we have to cut out all of those uh foods that weren't around in Paleolithic times is really unfortunate because they are some of the most nutritious foods and the cheapest of the foods that we can buy. Absolutely. And uh, and that was one of the things I was going to mention about the paleo diet is that, you know, we're, we're very lucky here in Australia. We can go and buy anything we want at any time we want. And, you know, a lot of the world's population, quite frankly, don't have that privilege. So one, we need to stop and be thankful that we do have that choice um, and two, we need to start thinking a little bit more mindfully in terms of um, our global um, footprint, really, if you like. The Eat Lancet report that came out a year or two ago now really highlighted that if we're going to survive as a human population and support 10 billion people by, by 2050, we cannot keep eating and producing the amount of meat uh, that we are eating at the moment and I think they recommend you know um, around 15 to 20 grams a day of, of red meat going into the future so we all need to start being a little bit more mindful of um, the environmental footprint of what we're consuming and whole grains uh, vegetables fruits and legumes are really some of the cheapest in terms of footprints but also they are win-win because they're um, very good for our health as well. Absolutely and during the conduction of your study Angela w did you get to speak to any of the participants who had followed the diet and uh, ask them why they had um, followed that diet? 
Yeah, I, I did. I recruited them individually and I spent quite a long time with wow. each participant. Um, you know, and to do DNA sequencing of, of gut microbiome, you, you, you do have to collect fecal samples as well. So I spent a long time in the lab with lots of little pots of poo <laughs> um, <laughs> to conduct my study. So um, <laughs> I'm very well versed on, on things that affect um, poo. I bet. Yes, so we had some great dinner time conversations about my <laughs> my research in the lab, but yes, I did spend a long time with each participant, and and you know they had all arrived at paleo for different reasons. Um, I think a lot of them were just concerned about their health going forward and wanted to do what they thought was right for them. It would be interesting to know how they came to that decision, wouldn't? Isn't it? Yes, I mean that could have been that could have been uh, another study, you know, yes. just by itself. Um, and yes. you know, when you're doing a research study, it's always so tempting to just collect more and more data. But, yes, um, <laughs> but you do someone, have to go to sleep at some stage, yes, and, and then <laughs> someone's got to analyze it. And um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> so <laughs> that's right. Yes, was and. Was there a difference in fecal samples between the uh, ordinary diet and the paleo diet, the strict paleo diet? Um, there was, in terms of um, appearance, if I can be blunt, when you have yeah, a, a, if you have a diet that's fifty percent fat, which most of the the paleo group did. That has an effect on your poo of making it quite shiny and. Ah. Um, not looking so flash really when it's in the lab in the in the little pots. So I really did get a feel for how much fat people were eating just by looking at the samples. Paleo poo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in terms of like actual chemistry differences, there wasn't a lot. Um, yes. There wasn't a lot in it, and I most of that I suspect was because they were having a good amount of vegetables. Um, yes. And vegetables mainly the type of fibre that's in vegetables is probably fermented quite down low in the colon, sort of quite mm -hmm. near where it would be excreted. Mm -hmm. So some of those differences, I think, um, is just due to the site of fermentation of some of those fibres. So oh. yeah, I think that, that needs a little bit more research, that area. Yes. So do you have any tips, Angela, on someone who, for, for someone mm -hmm. who may be starting to consider following paleo because it's been recommended to them they've been reading some books some stuff online and they're questioning whether it is a an appropriate diet for them so I think the first thing is to just ask them why why are they considering it if, if they think they may have an issue with grains or digesting grains or they're getting bloated after they're eating certain grains then I think that's where a a GP could refer you to a dietitian and really discuss that um, with someone who's quite qualified because you might be able to work out that it's only one type of grain or 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 work out what is in fact causing the the problem that you think is going on and help you be able to fix it without having to go down that paleo road. That's right. I do see a lot of people turn straight away to paleo diet in an effort to manage some uh, digestive type disorders, so bloating and fullness yes. and yep. and things like that, discomfort, uh, tummy pain, um, when in fact really a diet, the evidence is showing that a FODMAP diet is much more 
appropriate for irritable bowel syndrome type type disorders. And um, that's really important to go and see someone about because those those uh, symptoms could be very easily eliminated simply by just ch- cutting out onions, for example. Yeah, so, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And I think, um, and even the, the low FODMAP diet, is really only designed to be used for very short-term periods. We, we know that, that that diet does change your microbiome as well and not particularly in an, the, the, a beneficial way. So what we want to no. do with people is help them recover from the, what is causing their issue and then help them repopulate their gut so that they don't have an issue going forward. And I think that's where people need to really use some proper advice and um, see if they can get some really good direction on what to do about their issue rather than going um, straight down the paleo road. And and also I think if people understand that you can't really have a good healthy gut microbiome without a big variety of types of dietary fibre, that includes whole grains and legumes and nuts and fruits and vegetables. Um, and then when people understand that and, and know that they, they need all those foods in their diet, they just need to work out how to include them in a healthy pattern, then you know maybe they'll start to think that paleo is perhaps not the best option. Yeah, and there's as we've talked about, there's certain aspects of it that we can all take on board trying to increase our vegetables and decrease our um, our convenience foods and packaged foods and that sort of thing. So if if the paleo diet is working for you, then that's that's really great. Uh, but I think it would be an important message to also think about this resistant starch and getting some whole grains in there as well. Absolutely, yeah. You need the the whole grains are a pretty important part of the diet, and there's. There's not just resistant starch in there. There's a lot of other compounds and phenolic compounds that are in whole grains, which uh, we don't really understand everything that they do yet, but we know that whole grain consumption is associated with a lot of um, beneficial health outcomes. So um, consuming whole grains really needs to be in, in as part of a healthy diet. Absolutely. So we've looked at the fact that the paleo diet is lacking in this particular fibre. So I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there are wondering if they can just supplement with something. Yeah, look, one one of the areas of research that I, I haven't actually published yet, um, I've got a paper just about read, written, but people who are on a paleo diet um, appear to be at risk of deficiency for iodine and very low in calcium. So. Um, not, not that I would recommend uh, supplements, but they really need to be mindful of how they structure their diet so they don't end up deficient in those two uh, minerals or minerals and, and nutrients. So, so you have found uh, that the paleo diet, in terms of calcium, is uh, that that people are becoming deficient. Yeah, look, I mean, we didn't do a, a DEXA scan or, or bone density studies to say that it's had an, any long-term effect, but sure. their intake was very their low. Their intake yes. was very low. Yeah, ah. and other studies have found that as well. So I'm not the only one yes. to to find that um, because, yes. you know, you're not eating dairy and generally people on paleo don't have um, 
you know, soy milk. So yes. consuming, not consuming any sort of calcium alternative does make it difficult to get enough calcium. Um, so yes. that, that is one area. Um, in terms of supplementing with resistant starch, you can do that. And I have seen some paleo forums where they do promote um, having, you know, green banana flour or, or something similar, which is high in resistant starch. The thing is, is that you're still not getting the variety of fibres that you get from having whole grains and legumes as well. So, yes, mm-hmm. you can sub- substitute some of that with resistant starch, but you're still missing out on some of those benefits that whole grains can only provide. Well, that's fascinating research and I'm really thankful for you, Angela, for spending your time today in in explaining what you've been tucked away, working very, very hard, I'm sure, on for many years. How many years has it been now, Angela? Well, this project was actually for my PhD. So it took me, you know, three years and four months to wrap that up and um, <laughs> and, and finally got it published last year. So, yeah, it was really, oh, good, to, really good to see it um, out in the scientific community now after all that hard work. I bet. And it will <laughs> give many of us just that little bit extra information to think about and question before going down the paleo route and also give a lot of researchers um, a little bit of a nudge too in a direction to to go and investigate further. Yeah, I think there's yeah there's still lots to be done in the in the gut area, and there's so many different components of diets that it you know there's always something to research in terms of diet and gut health. How can people people get in touch with you if they wanted to reach out? Um, they can contact me via um, my website. I do have my own uh, website set up where I do share some of my research um, and that's at prebiohealth.com.au so they can contact me via the website. Um, And yeah, all my contact details are are there. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Angela. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Wasn't that great? I really like the take-home message from this one and that is really that variety is key and I think that this research highlights the importance of the knock-on effects of actually cutting out food groups. I should say that this research doesn't mean that if you follow the paleo diet or if you've followed it in the past that your microbiome is ruined and you're going to get heart disease. (laughs) No, sorry. Uh, The research is still early days and it just serves as a starting point for understanding the role of resistant starch on gut health and the possible effects of following a strict paleo diet on our gut health long term. Remember, everyone's body is different. This interview also serves as a timely reminder that if you're cutting out food groups, it's imperative that you do this under guidance from a qualified professional who can help you to understand how to ensure you meet the required amounts of all the different nutrients that our body needs and make sure that you don't become deficient in something. I look forward to seeing Angela's research actually on the effect of the paleo diet on uh, calcium intake. Oh, and if you're into learning about gut health, make sure you go back and listen to part one and part two of my gut health podcast where I interviewed my friend Lydia, who's a dietitian and gut health extraordinaire. And um, yeah, you can get the rundown on what we can do for optimal gut health in those episodes. 
I hope this podcast has helped you understand a little more about nutrition and health and look forward to bringing you some really exciting episodes that are coming up. I'm currently conducting interviews for a few amazing episodes. I can't wait to share them with you. It's been a busy week. A special thank you to my work placement student, Marianne, who has assisted in the administration and the research that has gone into this podcast episode. If you've enjoyed today's one, I would love if you could subscribe or if you could even leave a review or a star rating. That would be amazing. Thank you because it helps the podcast to rank in the search engines and then more people can find it. And then I'm just not talking into thin air with no one listening. (laughs) Um, Come and say hi on social media. Um, would love to chat if you had any questions about the episode or if you have any suggestions for upcoming episodes. Would love to hear from you. That's all from me now. I hope you have a great day. Bye. Bye.